difference is so vast that we really can't trust that the Bible that we have is the one that they wrote back then. Now, what I'm getting to is not just the major issues like did the Bible originally teach that Jesus rose bodily from the dead? Did it originally teach that He was God in the flesh, that He was born of a virgin? Those extremely important issues. I'm also wrestling with questions like how do we know that they got it right in all the particulars, or did they get it right in all the particulars? Sometimes it comes down to a single letter where the meaning can be quite different. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, about uh, 800 years ago, there was a monk by the name of Andrew who uh, had gone to what was the equivalent of a theological seminary in that day. He was living in England. When he got all done, the uh, president of the school said, wrote to a monastery and said, okay, this man is, is good to go to your monastery. Uh, he was one of the more detailed students we had here. Uh, in other words, he was anal. Uh, that, that's okay to say here, right? I, I would hope so. In Texas, sometimes they don't care for that kind of language. But I am, I am not a Texan. Ken, thank you for pointing out that I'm a fourth-generation Californian. I live in Texas, but when somebody says, are you from Texas, then, uh, then they have a problem. But uh, So Andrew was this monk. He was anal. He comes to this monastery. He meets the abbot, and the abbot sizes him up, and he reads his letter of introduction. He says, Andrew, I've got just a job for you. I want you to copy out some of our manuscripts of uh, the monastery laws that we have been following for centuries. And uh, you just, you're going to be a scribe. You're going to just copy these out. Make sure to get them as, as uh, right, as accurate as, as you can. So he got sitting to work, and a couple hours later, all of a sudden there's a knock on the office door of the abbot. The abbot opens the door, and here's the monk, Andrew. And Andrew says, Holy Father, I, I think there's a discrepancy in some of these manuscripts, and they don't seem to be saying exactly the same thing. Do you have some older ones that I can look at? And the abbot thought for a moment. He said, yeah, we do. I can, I can show you some older manuscripts. I'll let you uh, look at those. Now we're getting even older manuscripts. You normally don't let a new monk handle these things. They don't necessarily know how to handle them properly. But the abbot said, yeah, I'll, I'll let you go ahead and look at those, and you can start transcribing those. Two hours later, there was a knock on the door again. It was Andrew. Holy Father, we've got a problem. There's still discrepancies in these manuscripts. Have you got any older ones here? I, I'm really trying to get to making sure they're absolutely 100% accurate. And so the abbot sized him up a little bit more, and he thought, you know, I think I can trust this guy. He's going to be careful. He said, we actually have the original documents. They're hidden in an archive vault in the, the bowels of the library. So they went through this labyrinthian path. And if you've ever been in monasteries in Europe, you know that the paths are, uh, they go subterranean, they uh, snake around, and they're not very tall, intentionally so, so that you can't have marauding invaders come in with a large group of people, one person at a time, which is much easier to defend against. And so they finally get down to the bowels of the library into this hidden archives room, and the abbot shows him the original legal documents of the monastery. And so he sets to work. About 45 minutes later, there's eight hands pounding on the abbot's door. And it's the rest of the monks who are living there. Holy Father, this new monk has just gone berserk. And uh, so he said, well, what's going on? He said, well, you've got to come and see. He's, he's just going nuts. We can't control him. So they all run down this path, snake through the whole uh, serpentine route to get to the uh, archives room. And they find Andrew down there. And he's wailing. He's, he's, he's crying. He's pounding his fist on his desk. He said, they left out the letter R. They left out the letter R. And the abbot thought, man, this guy really is anal. And he said, 
What's the problem with that? The word is supposed to be celebrate. Kind of started here, you guys got it, and then the wings. I think the back center, are you still, what did he say? You must be Southern California transplants. Sometimes the very letters are important to get right. But what we're going to wrestle with is, do we have it right today? Now, you've all heard of uh, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, a novel that came out a few years ago. And in the Da Vinci, in the da Vinci Code, he has Sir Lee Teabing, who's the theological gadfly, say the Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book. Well, we've all heard an argument like that, like, hasn't the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times that you can't possibly get back to the original? And the argument is almost assuming every time the Bible is translated, they must take those manuscripts and burn them. You know, it's, it's really an unreflective, silly argument, and yet most of us don't know how to answer that. That's the one thing you're going to walk away with today, at least, is how to answer that question permanently. And I think you're going to be encouraged by uh, what the evidence really uh, reveals about this. Well, it's not just Dan Brown, who's a novelist, who said this, but there's many others who've argued it. But even as a novelist, here's the interesting thing. We, my wife and I have four boys. We named them after the uh, uh, horses of the apocalypse, the four horsemen, uh, death, pestilence, famine, and disease. Um, I think they're solid biblical names. But um, nevertheless, these... Uh, uh, Boys, two of them were in college when Dan Brown's novel came out, and one was at Georgia Tech and the other at the University of Texas. And that semester, there was a professor at each one of their schools who said, this book, Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, has proved that Christianity is rooted in myth. A novel has proved that. Remarkable. These, at major universities in this country, where they're making that kind of a statement, that tells you what uh, has become of our world, that evidence doesn't count for much anymore. We need to know what the facts are. And of course, everybody has instant access to just about any question answer they could possibly ever conceive of just uh, through the internet. You just Google your question, there you go. You get 40,000 places that will give you an answer. But whether it's the right answer, whether it's based on real evidence is a different question. So I'm going to try to give you some of that. Well, there's two attitudes as we uh, uh, wrestle with this whole thing that we need to avoid. The first attitude is an attitude of total despair. There is no need for us to come to the Scriptures and say, we can't possibly tell what the original text said, even though we don't have the original documents anymore. That's the attitude of a guy like Dan Brown. That's the attitude of somebody like Robert Funk, who headed up the Jesus Seminar. You may have heard of this group. They uh, had eight years, 84 scholars, casting lots, basically, to see what Jesus said. Uh, they uh, put red beads into a jar, which means this goes back to the words of Jesus, Pink beads were, well, at least the, the concept goes back to Jesus. Gray and then black is, there's no way this goes back to the historical Jesus. And they ended up having a, a Gospels that had 18% going back to the historical Jesus. The rest was made up by the church later, in their view. That's an attitude of total despair. But there's an equally pernicious attitude on the opposite side of it, and that's the attitude of total, uh, of absolute certainty. And we have groups that hold to that, Christian groups that say, Absolutely exactly what's in my Bible is what was printed in the, or written in the original text. Well, we're going to deal with both of these attitudes and show you that neither one is helpful. But let me begin by showing you not just a novelist, but a bona fide biblical scholar named Bart Ehrman. Now, he's written a book called Misquoting Jesus, the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And Bart Ehrman 
is a Moody Bible Institute graduate. He's a Wheaton College graduate. Then he got his master's degree at Princeton Seminary and uh, his doctorate at Princeton Seminary. He and I have been friends for, I think, 27, maybe going on 28 years now. And he was an evangelical when he started out at Princeton. And as he went through a number of stages in his studies, he became uh, a theological liberal. He denied the bodily resurrection of Christ. And then ultimately, he became an agnostic. And uh, today, he would say that if there is a God, it is certainly not the God of the Bible. So I'd say he's gone through a serious theological shift. And he said the thing that started to move him in that direction was the fact that the manuscripts that we have have mistakes in them, and they don't duplicate exactly the original wording. And his argument is, if God took the trouble to inspire the original text, surely he would have taken the trouble to preserve that text in the manuscripts. Since all the manuscripts have mistakes, he didn't do it, therefore the Bible is not inspired. So I think that's a, a fairly convoluted logic, but we're going to deal with the evidence here in just a, a minute. So in misquoting Jesus, here's what he says. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. That's true. We don't even have copies of the copies of the originals or copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. I don't know if that's true, but assuming it is, let's say, okay, that's, that's probably the case. Well, his attitude has become one of total despair, and he is a bona fide texture critic. Now, texture criticism is the discipline that tries to determine exact wording of the original text when we don't have the original manuscripts anymore. In other words, there are plenty of monk Andrews out there who do this kind of work. It's about two dozen of us who are extremely anal, and uh, you kind of shut us up in little corners and don't, you know, feed us and keep us in the dark, that kind of thing. Um, and and most, of the, most of these scholars are, are really, really eccentric. I'm not eccentric at all, so just wanted to let you know that to begin with. Well, absolute certainty is an equally uh, wrong attitude. This is held too uh, tenaciously by many Christians, and it's as if they say, and some of them do say this, if the King James Bible was good enough for St. Paul, it's good enough for me. I've actually heard them say this kind of thing. Well, I, I don't think English existed in the first century, but okay, that's fine. This view is destructive of the Christian faith. And the reason it is is because there's zero evidence to suggest that the King James was re-inspired. You know, you wait 1,600 years after the New Testament books are written, and, then all, and those were inspired. And then, in an English translation, God does inspiration again. That actually is more of a Catholic notion than it is a Protestant notion. And when I discuss things with uh, King James-only people, I say, well, I didn't realize you were a Roman Catholic. And they go, what? What are you talking about? I'm not a Catholic. They, they, they really despise Catholicism. And uh, so they don't realize that they're following a similar kind of a method. But it's destructive of the Christian faith as well because faith without reason is not a reasonable faith and it's not a truly Christian faith. Once you start with a position of dogma, then when there's cracks in your armor, the whole edifice just falls apart, comes crumbling down. So we need to be very careful about this. So what I'm going to tell you today is not that we don't have any idea what the original text is, and I'm also not going to tell you that we have absolute certainty of what the original text is. But just because we don't have absolute certainty we don't have to have total despair. There's a broad range in the middle, and it's much closer to absolute certainty is where we, we need to be. Well, there's three questions that I want to answer this morning for you. The first is a question of quantity. How many scribal alterations are there? And by that, what I mean is, how many places do we have the scribes who've actually changed the wording of the original text of the New Testament? 
uh, texture critics count this down to the very letter level. So if there's uh, a place where it's just a different spelling for, say, the name John, which is Ioannes in Greek, and some manuscripts have Ioannes with two N's, and some have it with one N. Each time we see that uh, in, a, in a passage, that counts as a textual variant. So spelling variations, word order differences, when they add a word here or there or take away a word out, or sometimes a whole verse or even more than one verse, those are all textual variants. The second issue is quality. What kinds of textual variations are there? And we're going to wrestle with that because that's an extremely important issue. And finally, the bottom line is the question of orthodoxy. What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? I think we all would like to know, is the resurrection of Christ secure, or does every place where the New Testament speaks about him as being raised from the dead, are there manuscripts that say, no, he wasn't, or he's still in the grave, or something like that? You'd like to know that, wouldn't you? I think that's kind of important for our faith, so that's what we'll wrestle with. But let me start with a preliminary question, which is, don't we have the original New Testament anymore? The answer is, no, we don't. All the books of the New Testament, all 27, were written to various churches, and by the end of the second century, they had all turned to dust. They were written on papyrus. Papyrus is a very fragile material. It has the consistency of a paper uh, grocery bag, if you will. And uh, uh, unless it's in a dry climate, it's going to deteriorate and just fall apart within 100 years at least. All of the papyri that we have found from the ancient world come from either Egypt or Qumran around the Dead Sea, a very dry area, or from Herculaneum, which is at the bottom of Mount Vesuvius at Pompeii, where you had the volcano that erupted, and we found papyri in and among the lava remains, actually, that had not been completely burned up. So it has to be a dry climate for it to last hundreds of years. And our New Testament documents would have been written on papyri. They all disappeared by then but they were also copied many times before they disappeared, and so that's what we're dealing with. Not only have they disappeared, but all the manuscripts, every single one of the manuscripts, disagrees with the other manuscripts. If you looked at our two earliest manuscripts, or two of our earliest manuscripts, they would disagree. Two early closely related manuscripts would disagree between six and ten times per chapter. Well, there's 260 chapters in the New Testament, so you... Uh, calculate that out, we've got at least 2,000 differences among the manuscripts there, uh, just among two manuscripts. Now you start adding others and the differences get to be enormous. So we have to do textual criticism because of the uh, disappearance of the originals and because of the differences among the remaining manuscripts. Well, when you think about the quantity of variants, I'm doing this chart here to show you uh, approximately how many words we have in the Greek New Testament. Uh, there's approximately 140,000 words in the original text of the New Testament. Now, if you're like the monk Andrew, let me give you the specifics. It's 138,162. And don't ask me how I know that number. But uh, then we have textual variants. And this is represented by the red graph. Approximately 400,000. For every word in the New Testament, we have about two and a half variants. In other words, we have far more variants than we have words in the original New Testament. That's a large number. And if this is all the data we had, it could be very discouraging for us to think we could go back to the original. Well, it looks like my time's up. Shall we close in prayer? <laughs> or do you want to hear the rest of the story? You'd like to know more. When you, when you hear this from liberal scholars, this is what they camp on is the quantity of the variants. We're going to show you how important those variants are 
which is what they know. They're just not telling you the whole thing. Well, the first principle to recognize here is the reason that we have lots of textual variants is because we have a lot of manuscripts. If we had one manuscript, which an awful lot of classical scholars have for their ancient text that they're copying, it's not going to have any variants. As soon as you have a second manuscript, it varies from it. It might vary 2,000 times uh, in something of the length of the New Testament. But the more manuscripts that you have, the more variants you have. So having more variants is not necessarily a bad thing. As a matter of fact, ever since the 17th century, scholars have said the more manuscripts we have, the more we can trace the genealogical relationship of those manuscripts to each other. And we can say, oh, this mistake, they got this from this group of manuscripts, which got it from this group, and we can trace it back. So the more manuscripts we have and the more variants we have, it actually helps us to get back to the original wording rather than detracting from it. What New Testament scholars actually have is an embarrassment of riches. And let me just kind of lay this out for you. Among Greek manuscripts, we have over 5,700 that are known to exist today. 5,786, to be precise, precise as of January 14th. So um, I'm related to Andrew. Um, and several of these, my institute, the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, has actually discovered in the last few years. We've discovered close to 80 manuscripts, and the institute that is kind of the keeper of these manuscripts in Münster, Germany, uh, is behind in cataloging our discoveries, but it's really exciting to see what's going on. So we actually have more than 5,800 manuscripts. They just need to get caught up on the cataloging. That's an awful lot of manuscripts for the New Testament. Now, to be sure, most of these don't have the whole New Testament in them. As a matter of fact, we have 59 manuscripts, and that's it, that have the entire New Testament in them in, among Greek manuscripts. 1% of all our manuscripts have the whole New Testament. But that doesn't mean that all of them are small fragments. We do have some manuscripts, especially the earlier ones, that are fragmentary. But the average-sized New Testament manuscript is 550 pages long. 550 pages. That's, that's a pretty good-sized manuscript. Now, besides the Greek manuscripts, the New Testament was translated early on into other ancient languages. And the very first one was Latin. Early in the second century, it started to get translated into Latin. And by the 4th century, when Constantine moved the capital of his empire to the east, to what became Byzantium and today is called Istanbul, or as the Greeks call it, Constantinople, when he did that, Greeks started to have much less of an influence in the Roman Empire, and Latin spread throughout all the rest of Western Europe. Our modern languages, many of them, are based on Latin rather than on Greek. Uh, Greek, in fact, has no children, but Latin has Romanian, it has Spanish, Italian, French, other languages like that, and even English uh, through French. But uh, we have almost twice as many Latin manuscripts as we do Greek. So that's, that's why, because uh, Western Europe was much, much larger than the area where Constantine had control. Now, if we didn't have these Greek manuscripts or these Latin manuscripts, we'd still have the entire New Testament multiplied many, many times in other ancient versions or other ancient translations. The New Testament was translated into Latin. It was translated into Coptic. Coptic is, by the way, a bizarre language and very, very hard to learn. Coptic is Egyptian hieroglyphics that is put into Greek letters. And... Uh, when you learn the verb forms and you realize for every verb there's 33 different forms, that's when most people quit Coptic. And that's why the largest, I was in the largest class of Coptic in the world a couple of years ago, there were 10 students. That's the largest class in the world for this uh, language. So uh, not too many scholars venture into Coptic very much. 
but Syriac and Georgian and Ethiopic and Armenian and even uh, uh, Arabic and uh, Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts and old church Slavonic languages you've never heard of before, and there may be only four or five scholars in the world who can still read those languages, but we have these ancient versions. Altogether, we have at least five to 10,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in these ancient versions in handwritten manuscripts before the time of the printing press. Now, altogether, that means we've got between 20 and 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament that exist today. That's a remarkable number, and I'll show you how remarkable it is when we do some comparisons. But let's say overnight you had a magic wand and you could wipe out all of these manuscripts and you could just destroy all these copies instantly. Would we still be without a witness? Well, first of all, there are some scholars who have memorized the entire Greek New Testament, and I think uh, they would count as a witness where they could reproduce it. But more importantly than that, we still have what's called church fathers, patristic writers, ancient bishops and archbishops and elders and deacons who wrote commentaries and sermons on the New Testament. And there's a place in Germany where they have been tabulating these quotations from the New Testament. Uh, a few decades ago, they came up to over one million quotations from the New Testament by these church fathers. Over a million quotations. Now, there's just under 8,000 verses in the New Testament. So to have over a million quotations means we've got the whole New Testament duplicated many times over in these patristic writings. Is this starting to look like an embarrassment of riches to you? Like, gee, how do we get through this? As Ken said, there's about two dozen textual critics in the world who work on the New Testament. So we've got great job security in looking at all this stuff. Let me give you a comparison to other ancient literature because you probably don't know or didn't know about this information, but let's compare it. We want to make sure that we're fair in our comparisons. In fact, I'm going to stack the deck against the New Testament. Uh, if we look at five great historians, Livy, Tacitus, and Suetonius were first century Roman historians, and they are the three historians on whom we base most of our information about ancient Rome. And then Thucydides and Herodotus were fifth century BC Greek historians. They're called the fathers of historiography. And uh, our understanding of great, ancient Greece comes primarily from these two authors. Well, when you look at the number of surviving manuscripts, we've got 27 copies of Livy. But I should tell you that when we're dealing with Livy, he wrote uh, 140 volumes, and we don't have all of those volumes. We only have 35 of them, uh, and not entirely, but we have parts of 35. So these 27 copies have 35 of those volumes at most in them. Tacitus may well be the most important Roman historian of the 1st and 2nd century AD. We have three manuscripts by Tacitus, three copies of Tacitus today. And the earliest comes 800 years after he wrote. And yet when you talk to classical scholars, they say, well, this is what we've got. We don't want to plead ignorance. This is the best data we've got. We've got to assume that it goes back to what Tacitus originally said in all of its essentials. Suetonius, another important author, we've got well over 200 manuscripts. I think it's up to 227 now. Yet we're still waiting 800 years before we see the first copies. Thucydides and Herodotus, you know, you don't, this is not going to show up on the exam, so don't be taking notes at this point. But uh, Thucydides and Herodotus, we've got some manuscripts from the first century, small slivers of manuscripts, but that's it. And then we wait again several hundred years before we get more. Now, if we put these all in a group and compare them to the New Testament, we give all of these five authors, counted as one author, what we'd have is still less than 400 manuscripts collectively. Less than 400 for all these guys put together. And the oldest manuscripts, the oldest come 300 years plus after the originals. Now, how does the New Testament fare? We've got almost 6,000 manuscripts in Greek alone. 
We've got over 10,000 in Latin, between five and 10,000 in other languages. And we have a million quotations in the Church Fathers. And the earliest dates, well, our earliest fragment, it's just five verses, I'll show you a picture of that later, comes from within decades of when the New Testament was written. It's written somewhere between A.D. 100 and 150. That's a remarkable difference, folks. We have an embarrassment of riches. We have far more manuscripts for the New Testament than we do for any other ancient literature. And we have dates of these copies that come earlier than virtually all ancient literature. Well, let's compare the New Testament to, say, the average classical author to give a more reasonable comparison. The average classical Greek writer has less than 20 copies of his writings still in existence, and we're waiting half a millennium before we see any of them. If you stack them up, we could, if we could get all those copies of one author, stack them up, it would be about four feet high. Now, how high do you think the stack would be for the New Testament manuscripts? Would it hit the ceiling? Any guesses? You guys are really quiet. Are you out there? Anybody think, yes, it'll hit the ceiling? Come on, if, if I had Baptist here, you'd say, yes, sir, it would be, amen, you know, that kind of thing. This is not a Baptist church. I can see that plainly. All right. It's also not a Presbyterian church because you guys sing well, and we know that Presbyterians will be the first ones in heaven because it says the dead in Christ shall rise first. So... Okay, so we've got uh, four feet of manuscripts. Compare this to the New Testament. It's over a mile high. Not counting the quotations from the Church Fathers, which I have no idea how to figure that out, but a mile high of all these manuscripts compared to the average classical author. And when I say the average classical author has fewer than 20, it's usually far fewer. Most of them have one or two copies. That's it. So I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. This is to scale. It's remarkable, isn't it? We have a great embarrassment of riches. Well, that's the, the number, but let's think a little bit about the dates of these manuscripts. I want to talk to you just for a moment about the discovery of P-52, which was not a fighter plane used in World War II, but it's an actual papyrus. And here's the, the picture of it. You can see this on the screen. Let me give you a background to it. This manuscript was discovered in 1934. But 90 years earlier, 1844, there was a German scholar at the University of Tübingen who had studied under Professor Hegel. Now, you, that mean, name means probably nothing to you, and probably the fact that he taught Hegelian dialectic means nothing to you. But what may mean something to you is you've heard of thesis, antithesis, and when they go together, what's that called? Synthesis. Yeah, that's Hegelian dialectic. Well... Professor Hegel taught F.C. Bauer in Tübingen in the mid-1800s, and Bauer applied this dialectic to the New Testament. Here's what he said. He said, you have Peter's form of Christianity, which is a very Jewish form of Christianity. That was the thesis. Then there's the antithesis, which is Paul's form. These two guys are butting heads against each other. They're completely contrary to each other. And that's a Gentile form of Christianity. Then you have the form where it synthesizes that, which we get in the book of Acts, where both Peter and Paul look like decent guys and they agree with each other. And so Bauer said Acts is not at all historical. It's written well after A.D. 150. And then he says, and then the, you get the real uh, amalgamation, the real synthesis between the two in the Gospel of John. His argument was that John's Gospel, and he wrote this in the year 1844, cannot be dated any earlier than A.D. 160. And probably it should be dated about 170. Now, 90 years later, 
here comes this fragment that shows up in the basement of the John Rylands Library at Manchester University in England. There was a doctoral student by the name of Colin H. Roberts who was rummaging around in the basement. He, he was an expert in, in papyri, and he comes across this papyrus that's three and a half inches tall by two and a half inches wide. And he looked at it and said, well, this, this looks like it's from John's Gospel. And then he turned it over and he saw that it was also from John's Gospel. One side had John chapter 18, verses 31 uh, through, uh, through 33, and then on the back side, John 18, verses 37 and 38. Well, that told him that the form of the book this was in was a codex, you know, the kind that we have today where it's bound on the left side and you turn the pages. We know the codex uh, form of book was invented in the 90s of the first century, and Christians were the first to popularize it. But what we also now realize is that every single New Testament manuscript we have was written on a codex instead of a scroll, which is a remarkable thing. But he said, this is remarkable to find a manuscript of the New Testament. There aren't uh, a lot of those. There's, we have on papyri 127 total. Uh, well, he said this to the three leading papyrologists in Europe at the time, and each one of them independently wrote back to him and said, this manuscript should not be dated any later than A.D. 150 and could be as early as A.D. 100 and probably closer to 100 than 150. Each one of them independently said that. But he heard from a fourth papyrologist, a guy named Adolf Deisman, and Deisman said, no, I, I disagree with my colleagues. I think this manuscript should be dated as early as the 90s of the first century. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in Southern California. We were taught this kind of logical principle. I, I presume it's logical. Generally speaking, the copy of a manuscript is not written before the original text. Is that what you would learn here too? And, and consequently, if Bauer is saying John's Gospel isn't written to 170, but the copy of it exists as early as 100 and no later than 150, then somebody's made a big mistake. This one scrap of papyrus sent two tons of German scholarship to the flames. There's a little ditty that we say in New Testament circles about different kinds of ideas in New Testament studies. The Germans create it, the British correct it, and the Americans corrupt it. So it goes on with our education. I won't get into that. It's very, very true, though. Germans like to come up with philosophical constructs, and the British, who love history, and they have a glorious history to think about, uh, they correct that with genuine historical data. So here's the principle we get from this one manuscript. An ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption. Or in this case, an ounce of evidence is worth two tons of presumption. That's the kind of data that we need to be talking about when we talk to people about Scripture and about the Gospel. Well, we can compare this also to the King James Bible. And the question that we started with was, has the Bible been translated and retranslated so many times that we don't know what it originally said. Here's a chart to show you just some differences quickly. The King James Bible was published 399 years ago. It was the, the New Testament was based on six manuscripts, the earliest of which came from the 12th century. Today, we have nearly a thousand times as many manuscripts in Greek alone, and our earliest come from nearly a thousand years earlier. So as time goes on, are we getting farther and farther away from the original, or are we getting closer and closer? We're getting closer. We've got more manuscripts and much earlier data than what they had then. As a matter of fact, we have hundreds of manuscripts that predate the 12th century. Here's just a, a chart on the early copies of the New Testament, the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th. By the 4th century, 
within the first 300 years of the completion of the New Testament, we have over 120 New Testament manuscripts that still exist today. Now, you look at uh, Livy, Suetonius, uh, Suetonius Tacitus, of uh, uh, the other guys, you know, those Greek guys, anyway, um, uh, Thucydides and Herodotus. If you put all those five together, we're waiting 300 years. And after 300 years, still there's a goose egg. There's no manuscripts. We have to go beyond 300 years before we get any. Compare that to the New Testament. We have well over 100 manuscripts within the first 300 years, and the whole New Testament duplicated multiple times over. That's something worth cheering about, don't you think? Come on, any Baptists in here? I'm going to start accusing you of being a Presbyterian church. Well, here's the bottom line. As time goes on, we're getting closer and closer to the original wording, not farther away. That's a point you can stick with. You, you understand that, right? That's pretty clear. I hope that helps for, for us. Let's see, I've got... Okay, we, we'll, we'll be fine. Okay. The second question. Each one of these takes less time to answer. That was the big one I wanted to wrestle with. The second one is the quality of variance. What kinds of variance are there among the manuscripts? Well, the vast majority of them make no difference at all. 99% of the textual variants make no difference at all. The vast majority of these can't even be translated. Uh, for example, there's uh, spelling differences, for example. And, what? Oh, sorry. Differences in spelling, yeah. But you understood what, it, what the word meant. And, uh, it's, in fact, over 70% of all textual variants are just differences in spelling. The ancient scribes couldn't spell any better than we can today, and they didn't have any dictionaries that said this is the right way to spell it. My brother is a very bad speller, and uh, he wrote out a check for me one time where he misspelled his own name. Uh, I don't know if that was on purpose, but uh, nevertheless, he would have not been a very good scribe either. But th that's the kind of a thing we have in these ancient books. Uh, so they make these kinds of mistakes. Another kind of variation is alterations that cannot be translated from Greek to English. Greek is a highly inflected language. And so if you want to say something like Jesus loves Paul in Greek, you can put it in any order you want. You can have it be Paul loves Jesus, or loves Paul Jesus, or loves Jesus Paul, or Jesus Paul loves, any order you want. And it always means the same thing because it's not the word order that determines meaning, but it's the ending on, on the word, whether it's the subject or the object. On top of that, there's the use of the article, the word the in Greek. Uh, and uh, you can use this with proper names. So it could be the Jesus loves Paul or Jesus loves the Paul, something like that. I wrote my master's thesis on when the article is not used. I spent 1,200 hours working on that. And then I wrote my doctoral dissertation on when the article is used in Greek. I still don't know when it's used with proper names. I don't understand why it's used with proper names sometimes and sometimes not, and nobody else does either. But I can tell you this, those two works, if you'd like to get them, uh, they, work, they work better than Lunesta. I mean, they, they will cure the most hopeless insomniac. So, I tabulated how many ways you could say Jesus loves Paul in Greek, and here's... Here's how many we've got. You can write this down. This will be on the test. All of these are translated every single time. Jesus loves Paul. It's not just eight ways. There's another eight ways in which you say this, and uh, it's Jesus loves Paul every time. Sixteen different ways to say Jesus loves Paul in Greek. Now, these are just a few of the possibilities. In fact, I've tabulated it, but there are hundreds of ways, about 500 ways to say Jesus loves Paul in Greek depending on the spelling of the words, the synonyms, particles that don't get translated, hundreds of ways, about 500. 
In fact, I've wrestled with this question. If you can have about 500 ways to say Jesus loves Paul in Greek, where the translation every single time is Jesus loves Paul, then how many variants could we have potentially where it doesn't change the meaning at all of the New Testament? Uh, and uh, it's just a matter of these kinds of internal Greek variations. And once I came up to tens of millions of possible variants, then I decided I, uh, that's enough, I, I've got to quit. The point is, we have, what did I say, 400,000 texture variants among our manuscripts? That's a drop in the bucket as to what we could have. It's really not that significant when you think of the 20 to 25,000 manuscripts and the quotations and all this and how we're counting variants. Well, the second smallest group of variants are those that are both meaningful, but they're not viable. That is, they don't have a good chance of going back to the original text. And uh, let me give you an illustration, one of my favorites. I, I found this in, in a 14th century manuscript. When we say it's not viable, it, it's, not, it's not found in earliest enough manuscripts, or it's found just in a single manuscript, uh, or you can understand why a scribe would say this, that maybe it was a, a mistake or an intentional change or something. In 1 Thessalonians 2.7, Paul says either we became gentle among you or we became little children among you. If you use the NIV, it has we became gentle among you. If you use the TNIV, it says we became little children among you because they went with a different wording there. The difference in Greek between gentle and little children is one letter. It's either we became apioi or we became napioi. And then the word became in Greek is egonathemen. So it ends with an N. And the next word either starts uh, with an N or just with a vowel. So it's either egonathemen apioi or egonathemen napioi. You caught that difference, right? Well, the scribes didn't either. That's why we have these two different readings. Those two are strong, viable readings. It changes the meaning. Those are important variants. But there's a third variant that is found in one very late medieval manuscript. And the scribe wrote, wrote we became horses among you. Now, I wonder if he's just a disgruntled USC fan because they keep losing the uh, uh, national championship, but uh, I'm not sure. Or maybe he was just looking out the meadow. Who knows? But the fact is that's a meaningful variant. It makes sense, but there's no way it goes back to the original. That's the sm second smallest group. The smallest group of variants are those that are both meaningful and viable. They, that is, they have a good chance of being authentic. And here's the point. Less than 1%, far less than 1% of all of our variants are in this category. This is the, the kinds of variants that scholars are debating. This is the area where people are saying, yes, but did it say this or did it say this? We're not talking about 400,000 variants. We're talking about 1,000 variants at the very most. And so far less than 1% of all of our texture variants fit this group. That's important to know. Let me give you a good illustration of a viable, meaningful variant, and it's a place where I honestly don't know what the original text said. Revelation 13, 18. You all know this verse, or at least the last three digits of it. Let the one who has insight calculate the beast's number, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. We all know that. You asked anybody on the streets of Bend, what's the Antichrist number? Oh, 666, we know that. Well, not so fast. In the year 1844, there was a German scholar who went to Paris to look at one of our most important manuscripts for the book of Revelation, and in fact, it's our second most important. 
It was written in the 5th century, about uh, 400 and something. And the problem with reading it was that this manuscript had been scraped over again. It was written on parchment or animal skins. And it had been scraped over again and reused by another scribe about 800 years later who uh, reused this text and wrote in Syriac on top of the Greek. And he wrote it diagonally, so it makes it really hard to read the Greek. Well, so this scholar, Constantine Fontischendorf, had unbelievable eyesight. It took him two years, but he was able to recover that text underneath the Syriac in those 150 leaves of Greek text. That's all, all he was working with. It took him two whole years, but he recovered 99% of it. It was 99% accurate. There's only been one other person in history who's been able to read this text, and that was a guy in 1970s who did his dissertation on it and found just a few more words that Tishnerf had not uh, read. But Revelation 13.18, this manuscript says the number of the beast is 616, not 666. Now, most scholars today think that 666 is the number of the beast and 616 is the neighbor of the beast. You know, they're not sure, but something like that. You guys in the back still didn't get that one. That's... The jokes are going to get worse, so you better start laughing now because there's not going to be much left. Well, if we just had that one manuscript, even as important as it is, we might not know. But here's the interesting thing. Ten years ago, at Oxford University in the Ashmolean Museum where they had excavated tens of thousands of papyri and they haven't had a chance to go through all this, they finally went through a number of them and found 17 New Testament papyri. This is ten years ago. One of these papyrus manuscripts was 26 different fragments spread out over nine chapters for the book of Revelation. And it just so happens to be our earliest manuscript for Revelation now. There's a, a papyrus a little bit larger than a postage stamp at Revelation 13:18. And uh, seven years ago, I was at Oxford University and I asked to look at this uh, manuscript. And they brought it out. It was under a plate of glass. This is the best way to save papyri is to keep them in glass. But they put a white sheet of paper on the backside, which is where this text was. And so they actually had to slice open the glass case for me so I could see Revelation 13, 18. And uh, I said, wow, I'm surprised that you put it there because I'm sure there's many scholars who have looked at this manuscript ever since it got published three years earlier. Why do you keep putting it in the wrong, uh, wrong direction? And I said, how many scholars have looked at this? He said, counting you? Yes, one. So I guess I was the first to, to look at the thing. But I looked at it both under a magnifying glass and a microscope. And sure enough, it says the number of the beast is 616. It's our oldest manuscript for Revelation. Now, those two manuscripts together may well tell us what the original number of the beast was. I'm not sure. It'll take a good couple hundred hours of research to determine that, and I haven't been able to do it. And even then, we will not be sure. We'll just have, uh, we prefer this reading over that reading, but we can't be absolute. I'm sorely tempted, though, since I'm the senior New Testament editor of a Bible translation in that Bible, to, for the next edition, change the number of the beast to 616 just to mess with people. But, um, but I've, got to, I've got to follow the evidence so I'm, I don't give in to that temptation. But here's the thing. Let's just suppose that 616 is the number of the beast. If that were the case, that would send seven tons of popular Christian literature to the flames, wouldn't it? It would be remarkable. I'd, I'd love to see that. Anyway... At the same time, here's the, the point I want to stress. This is a meaningful variant. It's a viable variant. It's important. But I know of no church, no denomination, no Bible college, no theological seminary, no catechism, no creed that says 
we believe in the virgin birth of Christ, we believe in the deity of Christ, we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, and we believe that the Antichrist number is 666. It's important, but it's not that important. And as a matter of fact, that's true for all of the variants we have. Although they're important, they don't touch the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. They don't touch the bodily resurrection. They don't touch the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, salvation by faith. All of that is absolutely secure in the manuscripts. So the final question, which I've just uh, tipped you off to, is uh, the question of orthodoxy. What theological beliefs depend on textually suspect passages? Well, we'll just deal with one real quickly. And this, again, I want to quote from Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Sir Lee Teabing says to Sophie, My dear, until that moment in history, he's speaking about the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325 when Constantine was the emperor. Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man, nonetheless, a mortal. What Teabing is asserting is that the deity of Christ was invented in the 4th century, and he goes on and says Constantine is the one who invented that. Remember how earlier I told you an ounce of evidence is worth a pound of presumption? Let's look at an ounce of evidence here. This is another ancient papyrus, P66, also from the 2nd century. It has almost the entirety of John in it. And uh, this is the first chapter. Just read along with me, if you will. Uh, now, I'm going to translate this first verse. I'm sure.